Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavin. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. So the band comes off of the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. They're kind of a wreck. They're in shambles. They all have fairly major alcohol and drug addictions. They all go to rehab together, uh, and they all emerge clean and sober, or clean and sober-ish, and they decide they need to work with a new up-and-coming rock producer who is the engineering protege of Bruce Fairburn mm. uh, and has been working his way up. He's now moved on to producing his own records and he's worked with bands like Kingdom Come and The Cult. And they uh, begin recording with Bob Rock in 1988 through 1989 at Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver, Canada. The album is originally slated to come out uh, the summer of 1989, but it gets delayed. They push it back for a fall release, uh, mm -hmm. September 1989. And Mike, you have pointed out an interesting fact, which is that they played the Moscow Peace Festival right before this album came out, which means it had to have been in the can uh, while they were playing that festival. Yeah, because we were talking last week about you know the, the Peace Festival show and you know how that fell in line uh, with you know the sequence of the records and it was basically those shows were a month before they released this record. But I did some research. I didn't see anything where they played any tracks from Doctor Feelgood on that on that show. At least not in the official release. So you know maybe they, they did something that was put in the can and and not you know aired on MTV or the uh, the pay per view. Yeah, but it, yeah. Was, it was damn close in terms of. You know them having all this material recorded and them doing that show and you know if you look at the show they appear to be healthy they appear to be on the ball especially compared to you know the shows we saw in the girls 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 tour where they were you know energetic but also on on the verge of a mess you know it felt like you know that show was going to fall apart at any time where you know uh moscow music peace festival they, they seem to be together and, and and focused on point yeah so so bob rock works with the band uh, he tends towards recording them one at a time because he feels like he can get them to concentrate and focus better when they're not distracted with the other members. Vince Neil, much like his relationship with their previous producer, Tom Werman, somehow develops this somewhat adversarial relationship with Bob Rock where Bob Rock takes to recording three passes of each Vince vocal, which he then labels sucks, sucks less, and sucks least. And the idea is that they're not done until they have a full track of sucks least. Um, but overall, Bob Rock manages to get a pretty incredible rock sound. I mean, not to say that the Tom Worman stuff doesn't sound good, but this sounds like that on steroids. And it's so impressive that Metallica hears this coming off of And Justice For All, and they decide to work with him on the Black Album. Um, this album sells six million copies in the United States alone. Uh, they're by far their biggest record ever, uh, their only number one album. They, they have five singles accompanied by five videos, and uh, they launch a massive tour in the wake of its success. So overall, first impressions uh, about the Dr. Feelgood album, John? The first thing I noticed was the production. Um, it, Like you said, it is like produced on steroids. There's a lot of songs that I would probably not like, um, except for the production. You know what I mean? There's th that really saves a lot of the songs. It's a lot brighter than Girls, 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 and a lot brighter than definitely a lot brighter than uh, Theater of Pain. There's a lot more low end and high end. You know what I mean? So that's really what um, keeps me listening to it because they're not. It's funny. I was expecting. I remember thinking like, well, this is a really good album, but there's there's a lot of kind of filler on here, but the filler sounds better because it's produced better. You know what I mean? It's produced um, better and it's arranged better too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's the only thing I have uh, to add to it. I'm um, I mean that's interesting to know about the way that they did the three passes on the vocals. I know Tom Worman was five passes and then would cut it. Would Bob Rock try and get a live cut one time? You know what I mean? A full good, or would he edit it together? You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure about the details. I tend to think of this album as kind of like. Alice Cooper's Trash or Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears, right? If you look at just mm. purely in terms of sales, it's their best-selling album ever because it crossed over into the mainstream. But what that means is a lot of people bought this album that weren't necessarily Motley Crue fans, not mm-hmm. necessarily that it was their best album. But what were your what's your overall impression there, Mike? Uh, I would say that, you know, again, the production on this record is killer. I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, they've always sounded like a huge band. And they're, they're really, again, just a trio with a singer. And I'm not trying to minimize you know, their abilities as a band, but this album sounds huge. And I love the fact that there's dimension with the production and there's a lot of layering of the guitars, which is great. Um, I agree with, with John in the fact that there is some filler. And I was wondering... You know, why does this album seem longer than it is? It's really only 11 songs, and most of the records are nine or 10 songs. And I was thinking, well, maybe if you pull out some of the songs that are weaker, you would probably have a stronger record. But, you know, the songs that are weak, again, to go back to John's point, the production, you know, raises the bar on those songs as well. Um, but you know, we'll get into that as we go through track by track. But I thought, you know, it's no wonder you know, that this band was as big as they were at this time, because, you know, th- I mean, this album just crossed over in a huge way videos were killer i mean they had you know full support you know they were on top of their game at, at this point you know whether or not their sobriety helped with that you know i'm sure it probably did but it, it was a killer it was a killer album um you know it might not be the motley crew that we knew you know from shout at the devil but it was you know it was definitely you know some of that was still there but also they're trying to maybe be a little more uh i'm gonna say in competition but you know working with their contemporaries i think some of the guys from aerosmith run this record some of the guys from skid Row run this record yeah you know some of the guys from cheap trick yeah so you could tell there's a lot of aerosmith there's a lot of beatles on this album there's a lot of influences there's yeah, some Zeppelin yeah. There. yeah but i think but i think that shows a maturity in a way because you know it's one thing to you know to write your own material but if you want to you know give a tip of the hat to the people that influenced you cool um it, it, it you've, you've got to be confident in, in doing that, you know, and be able to you know walk down the street and say, yeah, this is our record. And yeah, we we're influenced and, you know, so be it. Yeah. I also think that this album sort of has its foot in two different worlds, because on one hand, there was sort of this split in terms of the next generation of Sunset Strip hard mm-hmm. rock bands where you had the like kind of crassly commercial winger warrant <laughs> slaughter poison type bands and then you had guns and roses which in some ways was doing what motley had always aspired to do but maybe even doing it better Mm. uh, on some level and i think motley you can hear motley being influenced by both of those worlds on this record Uh yeah good point yeah Mm -hmm. So, all right, first song, uh, TNT, Terror in Tinseltown, which leads into Dr. Feelgood. It's a, uh, TNT's a nice opener. Um, are we talking about just TNT now? Because I could talk about, I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, we can do that real quick, I guess. Okay. Oh, so we're talking singularly, sorry, I don't... <laughs> we're just talking about TNT by itself. All right. It's a good opener. It's sort of a little bit like in the beginning. Again, it's a little bit better produced, less dark than in the beginning, but still, I mean, it's definitely dark subject matter, um, but it sounds almost a little more commercial. It sounds like a TV show. You know what I mean? So it's, um, I, I, I mean, it, it's a good opener. It gets my attention. I, lo- I love stuff like that on albums though. You know, that sort of weird soundscape, you know, this is where we're at. Sets the, sets the, Sets the place and the time. I mean, they really do fetishize Los, you know, L.A. You know, I mean, Motley mm. Crue is just the kings of that. And so they do that with that album. And then I like that they refer to like a 17-year-old dead of an, you know, overdose or whatever, sort of almost tying themselves to their fans or saying, we hear you, our fans, because they're mostly 17. I mean, I think I was 18, 19 at the time this album came out. So they know who's listening to them. Yeah. Mike? Yeah, you know, you know, obviously, you know, Dave, you and I have you know, recorded records that, you know, that had 
albums that had intros and sometimes the, the intro is appropriate and, and it works. I think, I think this works, but you know, when you have such a strong song as Dr. Feelgood, to me, they should have just opened the, the album with the track Dr. Feelgood. I don't really think the, the intro really serves the album in a way because the subject matter is still there and you still get into it. The intro doesn't really do anything to, to you know to sort of raise that bar and 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 sell you on it. It's just my opinion. Um, but interesting too, I, I read something online where I guess apparently there's a um, a sample where you know um, that was used on a a, a Queensrÿche record. Queensrÿche Operation Mindcrime. Yeah, when they it's the nurse paging the doctor. Okay, which is which is funny because that's such a nondescript sample. Like they could have easily had the secretary <laughs> at the recording studio record that like why did they even bother using a sample yeah go to the vault and say okay well let's pull that in. but anyway it, it's cool it sets the pace for the record it sets the tone but you know to me when you have a song that is as strong as what follows it you might not need an intro in my opinion yeah i mean the <laughs> very the very beginning of the intro kind of sounds to me like what a band would play as they were coming on to stage mm -hmm. before they go into the first song just to get, kind of get their levels. And you yeah. can hear that in the original demo for the song. And then they sort of then insert all this audio weirdness after that, before the main riff comes in. Um, I, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of the intro to Detroit Rock City, too, mm -hmm. because you've got this story that it's trying to tell. But the story's a little convoluted because they, they talk about this, yeah, the 17-year-old male ODing, but then there's the sound of a car crash. And it's like, well, wait, did he OD or was he in a car crash or both or what? Yeah. But or okay. did the ambulance crash or what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's yeah, a little, <laughs> little vague, but uh, I, I'm, I agree with you, Mike. If they had just gone in with what is one of the classic metal groove riffs of all time from the beginning i don't know that the album would lose anything so that takes us to dr feel good yeah that's obviously this is the well i don't know if it's the best song on the album but it's one of the strongest songs i've ever heard that that as you said that groove metal opening that is and they even play that out a little bit longer than most songs would at the time you know what i mean they keep it going a little bit longer mm -hmm. which really gets you into it um the real star of, I mean, there's a couple of things going on in that song, but to me, the real star of that album is uh, Mick Mars's guitar. Like just the, um, that, um, I mean, just the way that he gets, it sounds like a, like a dragon coming out of a, a dungeon. You know what I mean? Just the way that like right before, right before the main solo, but right before that main solo where he's just, you know, like, you know, where, where Vince goes guitar or whatever, yeah. he's doing that thing that just makes it sound like it's somebody getting ready to roar. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, and he does that in the intro as well. Um, and then the, the lyrical subject matter I had read somewhere that like, uh, and then I guess I could tell from the demo, the demo is completely different. I guess it's from the point of view of the doctor, whereas mm. in the, uh, the who's not the doctor, it's the drug dealer or whatever. Right. But the, um, the, uh, the, the Rick or Mr. Rock uh, told him to um, go back and rewrite the lyrics. Like said, he should take another stab at him. And that's how I came up with those great lines, which are really good. Although, interestingly enough, I was I was absentmindedly singing the song. Mm -hmm. And uh, Emily pointed out that, doesn't, you know, the line where it's like, I'm going to be your Frankenstein. Um, is it I'm or is it he's? Uh, he's going to be your Frankenstein. On the album yeah. version, but the demo version, I'm going to be. It's all from the. Right. Yeah, yeah much so, like Shout at the Devil, they changed from the yeah, first yeah. person to the third so, person. So I'm like, I was like, that doesn't that doesn't work. Why? Is, that's not a good line. I'm like, what? You know what I mean? And then suddenly I'm like knee deep in mansplaining. I'm like, well, you know, technically the Frankenstein monster is really the. The you know is the monster and Frankenstein is actually the doctor and he's the one that's ah, reconstructing and right. You know, it means but, I'm going to be Doctor Frankenstein. Right, exactly. Yes. I'm going to be. I'm going to bring you back to life. Right, or I'm going to change you and, and put you together or turn you into this non-thinking. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't know. It was kind of interesting to think about, but the lyrics it tells a story. It's got a good you know. Even the ridiculous line "rat tail Jimmy," which immediately made me think of everybody who had those rat tail haircuts in the eighties and nineties. <laughs> I mean, they still cut them like that here in Pittsburgh. Well, that's but, because uh, no countercultural trend ever truly dies in Pittsburgh. No. Right? Still, there are still like you know, like greasers and right. uh, in Pittsburgh. I mean, it's like <laughs> right. there, there are literally people still to walk around in. Uh, 
Levi's jeans, Reebok high top tennis shoes, and they drink Turner's iced tea and they walk down the street with no shirt on whatsoever. It's it's just a thing. Can you imagine? Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> That's just insane. Yeah. So at any rate, it's uh yeah, it's the strongest song on there. I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm sure you guys can talk more about it, but the lyrically it hits musically, it hits that groove is amazing. Mick Mars's guitar really, you know, just blows me away that like just that sound he gets uh is really strong so um i can't really add anything to it it's like it's pretty much a perfect song mike yeah i mean you, know, you can't say anything wrong about this song I mean, it's killer I mean, it's it's kind of like the uh the welcome to the jungle of, of this record i mean it tells the story of la like if you lived here or if you were you know born or raised here then you know this sounds like they're, they're singing a song about your neighborhood it, it totally makes sense you know, but beyond that, it's really a celebration of you know, the marriage between Crew and Go with the new producer and, and Bob Rocket and all these great tones. I mean, these drum sounds are huge. The guitar tones are huge. And I think, you know, part of that credit goes to Bob Rock because he can he can play bass, he can play guitar. He, like he can tell you, you know, you know, if you're so great, then go ahead and do it, you know, on your instrument and 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 that and that works. I mean, you know, you know, all of us as musicians, my God, like if, if we could play with like a rhythm section like this and have a producer like that, imagine what we could do. I mean, the possibilities would be endless, especially with the budget behind it, you know, <laughs> I wish they had. It's, it's a killer, killer, it's a killer song. It's a killer song. And the only thing I have to say about the song that kind of caught me by surprise in terms of listening to it recently was when it goes into that, uh, that G, D, A, that, that, it, that G is such a, an upbeat chord change it, it kind of catches you by surprise because it's kind of behind the drums in a way you know mm. i've got one thing it, it, it's a weird transition in a way but once they get into it it works you're there but the first time they go to that chord change it's kind of offsetting in a way and it, you know mm. we always talk about like, you know kiss playing behind the beat or da -da -da on the upbeat or the downbeat and it's just a musical you know point but still it, it, it's it's a killer song it's so killer and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this might be the first Mick Mars guitar solo on a Motley Crue record that uses uh, tapping? I I think you're right. Yes. I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. especially at the very end. Yeah, you know what, you're right. Yeah, because he, he'd done some like, you know, just tapping on, you know, like doing like the Jeff Beck thing, like he'll play like a semitone kind of thing. Uh, but in terms of like doing like the Van Halen style finger tapping, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about why is it that this song works so well versus a song like Five Years Dead, which we sort of agreed doesn't work that well. You know, when both songs in some sense are kind of, you know, the story of some low-level criminal, um, the, in this case, the rise and fall of this drug dealer. Um, here's something that I found that's, that's always struck me as being interesting about this song lyrically. Um, John, we should probably consult with your dad about this because <laughs> I know that academics have words for everything when it comes to analyzing poetry, right? Uh, but yeah. there's got to be a term for a line that is designed to work either with the previous line or the following line. So yeah. when Vince says, uh, but at night he'll always be found selling sugar to the sweet people on the street call this Jimmy's town, right? Uh, you can, yeah, you can yeah, read yeah. that as he'll they always be found selling yeah. sugar to the sweet people on the street. And then you can read it as people on the street call this Jimmy's town, mm. right? There's gotta be a word for that in poetry. I've never heard it done in any other rock song. It's the kind of thing that like Alan Moore would do in a comic book, mm. but you know, it, again, just just the kind of playfulness that, that Nikki yeah. Six is able to, do with words like that you just don't find other bands doing um <laughs> the only word i can think of is run on <laughs> that's you know I mean? like it's a run on sentence but yeah that's not it yeah um <laughs> and also i think it's it, it works as a song too because it's not so much condemning him as a drug mm -hmm. dealer and telling the story it's really you know I, on one hand it's it's kind of telling all sides of the story he sues the, your soul he's the one that makes you feel all right he's you're going to be your frankenstein but he's not what you call a glamorous man some people call him an evil man even to the line you know uh i got one thing that's easily understood great way to use that phrase by the way not a typical phrase in a rock no. song no. um you know let him introduce himself real good 
playing upon that whole sort of barrio slang, you know, yeah. like Chicano broken English. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, th I think the fact that it covers all sides of that, you know, and, and, and leaves you, it up to you to decide, you know, how much this is a guy who's just a complete loser. And then, you know, how much, if, if at all, he should be admired in any way for what he did uh, is what makes it a great song. Yeah. So. So all the way around. Slice of your pie. Uh, this is a song that's saved by production. Um, it's not, um, you know, there's, it's a little bit Aerosmithy, you know what I mean? The way that it's sort of written, like the lyrics are sort of delivered in sort of an Aerosmithy way. And I think um, Steven Tyler actually sings some backup vocals on this one. Uh, okay, no kidding. All right. Well, good. No, he's, no, I, I, I think he's on Sticky Sweet. I don't think he's on this track. Isn't no? I think that first voice that comes in. Oh, uh, you're right. I think you're right. Steven Tyler. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, sorry, but in terms of the chorus, okay, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dave. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an Aeros. It sounds like an Aerosmith song, um, but it doesn't. And again, the production helps it like rock a little bit stronger. Um, so I'm not totally like this is garbage. Skip. You know what I mean? It it doesn't do much for me, but um, you know. I, I and I I definitely caught the Aerosmith reference, um. Yeah, but still not not the strongest song in the album. Mike. Uh yeah, definitely. You know, there there were there are strong tracks on this record, and this isn't really one of them. And I think they they, they played this. Um, well, anyway, point pointing. Um, it's it's no wonder it's sort of an incestuous kind of uh, crowd because they were all recording uh, in Vancouver. You know, Aerosmith was there at the time. You know, working with Bruce Fairbairn. Da, 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 and, um, you know, but I remember reading uh, pointing. I remember reading uh, a guitar. What was the magazine? Uh, guitar for the practicing musician, which is a horrible title for a magazine. Um, they <laughs> yeah they interviewed Nikki and uh, and Mick and they 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 called them on every influence. Straight away, they're like, oh, isn't the end of the song, you know, the tip of the hat to you know, the Beatles, you know. She's uh, so heavy. So heavy. She's so yeah. heavy. Yeah, she's like, so heavy, yeah. And they were kind of like, yeah, it is, but, you know, but so what? <laughs> we're influenced by that. So, you know, why are you going to call us on that? But I think if, if, if anything, they had already written songs like this, and there were other bands were writing songs like this, they were kind of above it in a way. They didn't really need to pad the record with songs like this. And it worked. And if they needed material, it works. But... It's not really, you know, point being, I think there are so many other good songs in this record. They don't, they don't need to pad it with, you know, material that's not, not as strong as you know, the really great songs. But I want to get to this point too. And this just hit me this week. You know, unlike bands like Aerosmith or, you know, whoever, I mean, this is a band that, correct me if I'm wrong, has never really brought in outside writers like a Desmond Child or like a Marty Friedrichsen or whoever. Like, you know, that's how strong they are in terms of, when they write a strong song, they did a little bit later on, later and on. on on this album on one song. Okay, but, but my point being, you know, obviously, you know, when you have strong writers in the band, you either roll with that, or if you need some help, then you bring in the help. But they, they, up to this point, they never really brought in that help, and I don't think they needed it, which is a credit to them as songwriters. But on this song individually, it's not again, it's. it's it's an album track. It works, but you know, is a great no. You know, Doctor Feel Good's Kick Ass, and there are other great songs in this record, and this doesn't really, you know, match up in a way. Yeah, I, to me, this is the first of four obligatory sex songs on the record <laughs> that are all fairly interchangeable, and I think that that's the that's the bad part about them. It's not that any one of these songs is necessarily even a bad song. It's just that for the first time you've got these songs that really are fairly generic and they're all interchangeable. You could take one verse from this mm. song and put it in any of three other songs on this album and it would fit in just fine. You know, um, it's funny that, that he goes uh, from saying, if I ever get caught, they'll arrest me to saying she's a seductive 19 seductive ballerina. So obviously, Throughout the course of this song, this woman has aged from being, you know, <laughs> seventeen to legal age. But um, it's okay. I mean, out, out of the four obligatory sex songs, I probably like this one better than most of the others. But it's a hard call. They're all kind of equally okay. Um, 
Speaking yeah, of, they're, they're like the okayest songs. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're just okayest. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, okay, this one's a little more psychedelic, which is an area Motley Crue hadn't really delved into before. Mm-hmm. And then coming up, we have one that has a kind of a cool horn arrangement, which is somewhat a new area for the boys. So Rattlesnake Shake. Yeah, again, uh, I uh, it's another one, I hate to say it, it's another one that I sort of am taking as filler, although I like, it's got that little bass part that Nikki does, which is sort of kind of neat. Uh, it's like a bridge or a breakdown or whatever, so mm-hmm. I kind of like listening to that. It, it's not as, um, I, I don't know how to explain it. It sounds different than his other playing, and all I can sort of say is that it appears that it's completely d- direct in. You don't hear any pickup sound or anything like that when he's playing. I mean, maybe it's filtered out or whatever. So I kind of um, dig it. Usually his playing is a little more um, percussive, I guess is the way to say it. And this Mm. is a little, whatever, this is the first time I'm really, um, you can, in previous albums, I swear it almost feels like you can feel him hitting the string, even Mm -hmm. though or hear it, you can't really, but there's just something about his bass sound that like you can, you know, you feel it, whereas this, it's a little smoother. And that just might be technology or the way that it's filtered or something like that. Um, but uh, again, it's another song that's saved by production. I don't really care about it that much. Um, I like that, you know, like I said, there's not much. Does this have, is this the one with the Beatles? No, that was oh. Slice of Your Pie. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing... <clears throat> Nothing that really stands out to me. Again, it's 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 an okay song. Mike? Yeah, I, I know they, they, they played the song on the tour, you know, and it worked. Um, you know, but for me, in terms of just being a musician and learning how to play guitar, it was sort of a, a game changer for me because, um, you know, the on guitar kind of does, does this thing where it rolls around, you know, the major and the minor third on guitar, mm. which to okay. me, I was, yeah. at this point, I was like, okay, am I, I'm, am I going to try to sound like Randy Rose, or maybe try to sound like Jimi Hendrix, and I never really got far in either direction there. But either way, I realized that you know playing around the major minor third was a, an essential part of Jimi Hendrix playing. And mm. I, I, it, it's cool that you know they, they use that in, in the chorus in that way. But um, I don't know. Again, it's really not the strongest track in the record. I mean, at the same time, too, there were other bands like Skid Row that had you know songs like Rattlesnake Shake and. You know, even go back further to like Fleetwood Mac, they had a you know a song that you know that was called Rattlesnake Shake, and you know, it, it, I mean, well, it's, yeah, it's it's it's, it's yeah, it's, it's subject matter that's been covered before and covered by other bands at the same time. Rattlesnakes are sort of a trope in rock and roll music. Yeah. Period. Snakes, you know what I mean, and and even the way they present the song, it's it's again that. The thing that I think Motley Crue is trying to do is they're, they're trying to say we're part of this rock and roll pantheon. We're not mm-hmm. just a, you know, flash in the pan uh, metal band. I think that's also part of Mick Mars's playing. Like he is influenced by musicians that are older, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, than the musicians that say Mickey Six likes or Vince Neil or Tommy Lee because he's older. So he has a more he's more grounded in sort of the blues or that sort of Rolling Stones kind of sound. You know what I mean? So. Mm-hmm. I think they're sort of trying to say we're part of that tradition because there's lots of songs about, you know, that sort of country Western, there's a snake in my boot kind of vibe or whatever. I also right. think from an arrangement standpoint, you know, the song works and they also kind of give, you know, tips of a hat to, uh, you know, bands that they were probably influenced by, like, you know, like Aerosmith or Ted Nugent, because even the breakdown before that bass line you mentioned, John, you know, that breakdown, that climbing, da 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 is is so, mm-hmm. you know, from... Um, Aerosmith, uh, this studio version of uh, Train Kipper Rolling, you know, mm. and also mm. the, the baseline uh, breakdown is is you know sort of like a carbon copy of you know Ted Nugent's Stranglehold in a way. Mm. Yeah, good point. You know? But it, but it all works. But you don't really think of oh, that sounds like Aerosmith. That sounds like Ted Nugent. It sounds like Motley Crue. But they're pulling in the, those influences, which you know everybody does. And it, you know those are the things that I found. Uh, that were positive in this song. But, you know, lyric-wise, you know, it's subject matter that's covered elsewhere in the record. But arrangement-wise, it works. It, it's a well-written song. Is it the best song on the record? No, there are others that are stronger. Which brings us to Kickstart My Heart. Uh, this is the song that made me go out and buy this album. I wasn't going to buy this album because I was headed off to college and I, you know, wanted to uh, 
I think I was in college because it came in September, right? Yeah, we were we were in college. Yeah, yeah. okay, freshman year though. Uh, I remember, you know, you're trying to position yourself as a bit of a, well, you probably weren't, but I was. Um, and I was sort of moving away from metal at that time. And um, and then I heard that song and I was like, forget it. This is the greatest song ever in the history of songs. Uh, great opening, that sound that he gets out of his guitar. Even the talk box thing, I swear to God, I hate talk boxes. Like, I don't understand why anybody ever thinks using a talk box is even passable. And yet it totally works in this song. You know what yeah. I mean? Like totally actually uh, does really well. Um, the breakdown, like, you know, we've been around for 10 years and we're still kicking ass. That was that, those lines right there is what made me go out and buy the album. You know what I mean? Like that was, I was like, yeah, the crew, you know what I mean? Screw all you hipsters. Um, so that was, um, the, it's probably in my top like 20 favorite songs somewhere. You know what I mean? There's just nothing wrong with the song at all. Um, it's, I remember playing it for Jack, like, you know, my older son and him just losing his mind. You know, I think he was like in second or third grade and him just being like, that's the greatest song ever. You know what I mean? Like he just loved that song. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that song. I know in, in the previous podcast, I mentioned that probably the ultimate Motley Crue song is wild side, but this is, a, you know, if this isn't like a, a tie or it's definitely a close second I mean, this song is so so killer my god the intro is so you know ronnie montrose bad motor scooter and oh yeah you know the talk box is great and you know the, you know, the lyric content is cool because you know, here's a band that's you know sort of looking back and taking stock in where they are you know which you've got to be aware of yourself and aware of your surroundings and, and aware of what you've accomplished and it's cool to see they sort of take a look back and acknowledge it in, in the breakdown too but you know more so than the song uh, for me personally um, you know, I, I don't know if you where you guys saw the tour. I remember seeing the tour in Pittsburgh in December at the Civic Arena, but then I also remember going to see the show at what was at the time Starlake Amphitheater um, in the summer in July 1990. And as usual, in tow, I would bring my sister Jen to these shows, and you know, she'd always say, oh, "Did you buy tickets?" I say, "No, you know, we'll, we'll go to the show and we'll, we'll get some tickets there." You know, so we walked up to Starlake Amphitheater box office, and she said, "Oh, we're going to get you know insert expletive." you know, seats. And, and also we got this thing and it was um, Pitt, row B, seat 15. Okay, wow. So second wow. row, second row at Starlight Amphitheater, right? So we get there and we kind of go down to the seats, we get some nachos and some coke and we sit down and I realized, well, wait a minute, usually there's, and I told the story before, but it's pertinent to this story in this record. Usually there's PA on the left and the right side of the venue. There was PA and sub cabinets all the way across the front of the stage. <laughs> so i said to my sister we when we go to the bathroom you've got to get some toilet paper because we are going to get killed in terms yeah. of long we were second row and i've never seen another show since where there's been pa all the way across the front of the stage and it was relentless and if you watch the uh ntv documentary that came out around the time of this record you know there was interviews with those guys and, and tommy lee says hey i want i want you to go home you know saying man, I'm nauseous from the bass drum. You know? <laughs> and it, damn if he wasn't right. I mean, that takes major confidence to say, we're going to do this. And if you don't like it, you know, so be it. But the thing that was missing from that show, and I saw this on the NTV documentary, which I did see at the Sigurina show, if they had venues where they were playing in like a shed where it was like a, a cement stage, they would have these elevators in, uh, underneath the stage. And when they came out, it was like boosted up from you know from, from the underground in a way at, at the beginning mm. of the song, which is which is cool to see. Uh, but you know, last story, and it's, I know this is a long story, but th that breakdown when you know, do the you know sort of you know reflecting part, and then all of a sudden they come back and there's all the explosions and stuff. My sister and I were like, Jesus Christ! I mean, those explosions were so ferocious. We thought we're getting <laughs> we're going to get our faces burned off. And I remember I said I looked at my sister and she's like, Look at over there, and she's like looking at Nikki. Nikki's like laughing. <laughs> at, you know, at the audience, because they were, he knew, he knew it, he just, they delivered, and they killed, and they burned us, and he loved every minute of it, it was great, you know, I mean, my God, and they were so loud, ah, that's the thing that's missing in rock and roll today, man, I'm sorry, you know, the, the fact that we witnessed that up close is, is badass, and, and to this day, I envy my sister, because she got a, a, a Nikki Six Motley Crew, uh, you know, guitar pick, Mm. It had this whole narrative on the back, like, you know, the baddest, you know, loudest, kick-ass, un unrelenting rock. You know, there's like a whole narrative. It's even printed like, you know, vertically on the pick because there's so much narrative in the pick. But, you know. It oh, was, wow. Yeah. But wow. like this show was 
then this tour was kick ass, man. My God. You know, and if they, you know, to imagine, you know, opening to an audience and playing this kind of song and being able to deliver that way. No wonder they were so huge at this time. Mm, Killer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so the title of the song is inspired from when Nikki OD'd and they had to uh, shoot up his heart with adrenaline, supposedly, or possibly um, not that, but the, what have they called? Novacan, Novacan. No, no, yeah, uh, Narcon. 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 Yeah, there's you hear different stories about what they actually did to him, but either way, he OD'd and they brought him back to life. Actually, just a couple blocks from where I'm broadcasting from tonight, up on the Franklin Apartments, uh, Franklin go. and yeah, La Brea. So, um, yeah, I've always heard that that story is actually apocryphal that it was just they just gave him Narcan, but yeah, um, so either way, it was adrenaline in the heart or it was Narcan, right. um. In a way, kind of like he turns it around like Ace Fairly did with Shock Me, right? Where mm-hmm. he talks about something that nearly killed him and turns it into a celebration. In this right. case, them, you know, celebrating being adrenaline junkies, uh, basically, you know, skydiving naked and having sex with beautiful women and speeding in their their funny cars and, you know, breaking the speed limit in their motorcycles, being chased by the cops and... Um, I mean, this song captures that energy and that spirit so well um, that, like, it's funny. If you look at interviews with the band at this time, you can tell they're so defensive about the fact that they're clean and sober that they really go out of their way to emphasize the point that in every other aspect of their life, they are living as irresponsibly as humanly possible. So they talk about how they are riding these motorcycles at 100 miles an hour with no helmets on and, you know, like all this stuff. Um, and then I found this funny interview with Mick Mars where he was talking about recording this, this song in the studio with Bob Rock. And because it's a fairly fast song for them. And, and Bob Rock was saying, oh, you're, you're Russian. You're, you're, you're rushing it, you're rushing. Um, and because he was playing it ahead of the beat, because mm-hmm. the song this fast, it's almost hard not to get ahead right. of the beat on the guitar. And he and, and Mick Mars is looking at him and goes, I'm not Russian, I'm American. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. But this is one of those songs too that I think only works because Vince Neil has that larger than life persona to pull it off. And I think you really saw that when John Karabi came in and tried to sing a song like this, you know, when, when you have lyrics, like, are you ready? Are you ready girls? Are you ready now? You know, you need a Vince Neil or a David Lee Roth, somebody in that caliber who can pull off lines like that and make it seem credible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the band is firing on all cylinders, definitely making it happen here. So, without you, uh, so, uh, I, I mean, I don't really like it. It's a power ballad. I mean, they're trying to recapture their amazing strength of "Home Sweet Home." The production and arrangement on it is really awesome. You know what I mean? It definitely doesn't. I mean, I still sometimes don't understand how Home Sweet Home became such a hit because it's so clunky. Um, but they, uh, this one is less clunky, a little more polished, um, but really nothing that stands out to me. You know what I mean? Like at all. It almost, I, I feel like I kept thinking there's got to be more to say about it, but there's really not. Mike? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, at the time, you know, you want to, you know, sound like we're, we're crit- critical of the band or critical of you know what they're trying to achieve but like it's the obligatory power ballad for the record and there might have been you know too many on this record there were two and i think this that said i think this is probably the the more commercial of, of the two on the record and i think it works better in that regard um but you know they're trying to sell albums you know so what do you expect i mean you, you've got bands like aerosmith they're doing stuff like uh you know, what it takes and on the next record they're doing, you know, crying and all this sort of, it, it was, you know, it was part of the, of, of the plan, you know, and, and it, it works. It's a, it's a good song. It's well arranged, but you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, power ballads at that point have been, it have been already been worn out in a way, uh, but you know, yeah. still it's a well-written tune. Uh, it works, but yeah, I mean, you know, is it something you want to revisit and listen to? I don't, I don't you know, I don't think so. It's a little grating, 
on yeah. the nerves after a while, the going back and forth between without you, but with you, but without <laughs> you, you know, it's, it, I, I, uh, it's almost like a super saccharine sweet kind of ode to codependence that, <laughs> that yeah. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Um, it's not a song that I think fans are clamoring for them to bring back into the set or dying to hear live. You know, it was, it was okay for the time, but even for the time it felt a little on the generic side. And it was also uh, granted a single, but it wasn't played on the tour from what I recall, right? I don't think it was, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they played it live. Unlike Same Old Situation. Uh, there was a video to this, right? I mean, I remember yes. hearing this yeah. going like, yeah, and, and I like I like the song. Um, you know, it's, it's sing-along-y, you know what I mean? Like I find myself even, you know, singing without having listened to the album recently. But I mean, before, you know, singing along to it. Um, I, I, and the, the fact, I mean, is this about alternative relationships? You know what I mean? It's, you know, it's sort of saying it's the same, you know, behind all of it, it just winds up being the same old thing. You wind up being sort of tied down. It's a ball and chain. I mean, it seems kind of interesting lyrically, but I'd never really caught on to what they were talking about. I, th I think what this song is about is the fact that for whatever reason in the rock world, uh, there is a preponderance of bisexual women. And for, you know, th that fact means that if you are a young budding rock and roller, chances are at some point you are going to date one of these women and one of these women is probably going to leave you not for another man, but for another woman. And if you're Nikki Six, that's probably happened to you multiple times and you yeah. develop a certain sense of humor about it and you go, well, this is the same old, same old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just seems to be sort of about even though you think you're different and you're stepping out of, you know, stepping out of the suburban zone, it's still not as, it's still the same old thing. So, yeah, I liked it. I mean, it's a little bit better than filler, but it's still not, you know, not my favorite song on the album. Yeah. Mike? Yeah, I, I it's it's no wonder. It's it's kind of song that if you weren't, you know, like you said, Dave, you know, maybe the Motley Crue fans of, of you know, prior years you know is this really their thing no but you know if you're the casual motley crew fan you can buy into it and you can sing along to it and sometimes you know hey if, if you're if you're there and you're part of the audience you know then celebrate let, you know, let's enjoy this song um but i was listening to this week and in a way i could hear this song on uh the kiss asylum record in a way you know it's mm. it's got that kind of you know mm. behind the beat you know dun, 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 even almost like um heaven's on fire in a way yeah, there's I mean, that stabbing chord thing, which Nikki kind of goes back to a lot on this record, especially in the verses where it's yeah. where there's, you know, instead of doing, you know, chord changes, each chord is, becomes kind of a, a stab in and of itself. And then you're yeah. playing off the space between it. Yeah. Yeah. And also to even like the, the chorus in a way, it's a very all night kind of, you know, kiss riff in a way. Also owes a bit, I think, to Poison's Nothing But A Good Time, the whole uh, same old, same old, that's the exact same interval of same old situation. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, same. Yeah. yeah. But it's a well-written song. It, it's, it's stronger than some of the other, you know, what we call the you know, filler tracks on the record. So I have no problem with this song. It works. Yeah. So uh, as Mick Mars was flying over to Canada to begin the recording of this record, he apparently wrote this next song in his mind, much like Paul Stanley wrote Love Gun while flying over to Japan, uh, Sticky Sweet. It's a, I hate to say it, it's like a kind of a nothing song. It never, it never stuck with me at all. I feel like it should have, but nothing, Again, I think it's got elements of Aerosmith in there, right? I mean, that seems to be there. Um, it's got nothing a pretty about monster it. main riff to it. That's the yeah, that's yeah. the defining characteristic that sticks in my mind. But you're right. I mean, 
is it that different than the other three obligatory sex songs? Yeah, right, yeah, it just doesn't stay with me at all. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like no, it's it's that I think it is classic filler or not. It is the filler of the album. You know what I mean? Whereas before, even you know, I'll I'll gladly take a slice of your pie over this. You know what I mean? But it seems to be an obsession with food. <laughs> <laughs> you know musicians get hungry once in a while so right yeah, yeah. not you but other musicians yeah but other musicians yeah i just you know fantasize about people eating and i say that it sounds like a cool thing but anyway, um, <laughs> that's my alternative rock and roll relationship <laughs> no i'll say this it, it to me it's no wonder this song's on on, on the b side of the record it's you know it they've done it before you know you can bring in a steven Tyler, you can bring in a jack blades you can bring in whoever you know, but at that point, if you, I don't know, there you this album could have been you know on a diet in a way and like eliminate two or three songs and you've got a really strong record. You know, just adding content doesn't really necessarily make the record stronger or better. It just makes it more cluttered. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it definitely it's their long. It has it has the most songs. It's still pretty short. I mean, yeah, that's one of the the nice things about Molly Crew albums is you can listen to them pretty quickly, but. Yeah, shouldn't it shouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of nice self-reflection calling back to 10 seconds to love. It takes more than 10 seconds to satisfy this last. Um, but on the whole, pretty forgettable. Much like She Goes Down. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, what a terrible song. I don't even, I don't even know. There's nothing about this song at all. I mean, I, I remember being like, no one can hear me listen to this song. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know what I, mean? Like I would play it in my, in my dorm room and stuff like that. And that, I mean, I had the cassette, you know, so I would have to fast forward over it or whatever, listen to it in my car. It's like, no one can hear me listen to this song. It's whatever. It's stupid. But it's, I mean, whatever. I mean, there's, it, there's not even a clever innuendo or, or you know what I mean or even pl really plays around with the idea at all or anything you know there's there's nothing there man it's filler filler it's yeah it could have been dropped or rewritten you know what I mean I, you know if you're gonna write a song about that there's a million cliches for that you know what I mean I mean you could really yeah. write a you could really write the a hell of a song you know, just about that, if you really wanted to, but it just seems like this constant, she goes down on my friends and when I'm on my back and she, you know what I mean? It's just like, okay, we get it, buddy. You know, she goes down, uh -huh. down, down, down all yeah. night long. Yeah. It's almost yeah, yeah. like they're, they're bored with it in a way. Like, really? Is that all you do? <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, even the even the top of the line production, I think, cannot s save this song from being kind of mediocre. Even Robin Zander singing his balls off yeah. in the bridge, which sounds great, still cannot make this a great song. No, and I was going to mention too that you know I was I, one of the things that was my takeaway from the Girls Goes Girls review we did. Is I was going to say about this record, maybe they learned their lesson from you know the previous record and decided to you know be a little more focused and, and write better songs in a way. But you know, still that kind of creeps in. You know, some of the stuff where you we need a record, we got some we got we need some songs, and here's where it is. It's amazing that band could you know write so many great songs, but they can have so many songs that really just don't aren't that great. You know, and compared to other bands like you know Kiss, like you know records like Rock and Roll Over. There's no filler on certain records, you know what I mean, with certain bands. And, you know, I don't know. Again, it, this album could have been, you know, eight songs, eight, eight or nine songs. And this song probably would have been, I, if I was in the band, I would have said, that's the one that we don't need to include in the record. Yeah. Okay. Don't go away mad, just go away. Uh, it seems like it's two songs. It starts out actually really kind of interesting. I mean, it's got that sort of almost like folky country feel to it at the beginning. Uh, and then it goes into the sort of almost jokey chorus, don't go away mad, just go away, you know? And so it almost seems like they're jamming two songs together. I like the song, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't mind it. I think it's kind of a clever idea. 
Um, I remember the video and sort of chuckling about it. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's, um, I like, again, I like mix playing on it. Um, it's, and, and then of course it's got that sort of catchy chorus, which is kind of neat. So, um, I actually like the song, even though I'm, I probably shouldn't, I don't know. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, it's a catchy tune. And I was wondering if they were influenced at all by, uh, Tesla's, uh, the way it is. Um, mm. and again, you know, Maybe they were because I think that uh, the great radio controversy Tesla record came out maybe maybe a year before this one or okay. maybe a few months. But either way, you granted you know Tesla toured with them. I remember seeing them open uh, to them uh, on on the uh, the Starlight Amphitheater show in Pittsburgh. But it, it's a similar chord structure. It's there's more of like a major um, scale guitar playing the mix doing, which makes the song sound more like you said, John Folky in a way. You know, it, mm -hmm. it works. Um, but you know, it, it's catchy. I like it. I, you know, I remember loving the video. Uh, but again, it goes with the, you know the up tempo thing at the end. It, it's just, it's a well written song. I mean, it, it's it, it's one of the stronger songs on the record in a way. And you know, it's not necessarily a ballad, but it's like in between a ballad and a rocker. And you know, in that way, it works. It goes to a place that they haven't gone before, which mm -hmm. is, I think, capturing a spirit of kind of melancholy that isn't typical for a rock song to try to capture. Um, the phrase itself, don't go away mad, just go away, kind of, is one of those like things you would see on a bumper sticker at a truck stop. I mean, it's not that clever, but um, but I do, I like the the reference to Too Young to Fall in Love. Guess we knew it all along. There's a little more, a little self-reflexive, reflective thing going on in there. I also hear the influence of GNR on this track. Because oh, I really think yeah. that, you know, Guns N' Roses opened up some shows on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. These guys were hanging out. Um, and I can hear Duff's influence on Nikki's bass playing. Nikki's doing a lot of yeah. cool melodic stuff here. And he's kind mm -hmm. of, uh, I, I think he heard things like Sweet Child of Mine. And he was like, oh, shit, I need to step up my game here and show that I can do that kind of thing, too. Um also, I think it's interesting. The song sort of taps into this kind of laid back, laconic uh, L.A. lifestyle in a way that they haven't really talked about before. That is that, you know, L.A. is the place that you go to reinvent yourself, but it's also the place that you go to forget about your past. Right. So mm -hmm. like if you're in a relationship and the relationship goes south and maybe it's not the great love of your life, but you're feeling a little down, then, you know, you call up Jeff wire and he goes, Hey man, come crash on my couch and we'll shoot some pool and party all night and sleep all day and go to a strip club and forget about it for a while. You'll be all right, dude. You know, and that's like, you know, that's, that is a part of the LA rocker lifestyle. And that is a part of Motley Crue that they hadn't really talked about or tapped into before. Yeah, and it's it's a big enough world where you can do that and and sort of be anonymous in a way. Like you can do that and be under the radar, you know. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, and get point. away with it if you will. It's you know, it, it's a thing. <laughs> it was a thing, you know, what we call that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Good tune. Definitely. Time for change. Uh, it's uh good. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I like it. The production saves it, makes it better than um, their other, I, I don't really understand their, they're wanting to write a song about politics or about everyone becoming one. Um, well, I think it's so the next, the next logical step, right? I mean, anybody, you know, Nikki's sort of proven that he can write the great head banging fist pumping rock anthem and shout at the devil mm -hmm. so the next logical step is can you write an anthem that's like that that's actually about something which is what i think he was trying to do with fight for your rights and to a lesser extent right mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. right and it doesn't he can't do it which is weird because he's actually a very good writer like i don't understand why he wouldn't take like one of his story songs or you know what i mean or use imagery the way that he does because it just doesn't it just doesn't um work like it just feels wonky and weird i don't i don't know i don't like it it, it doesn't fit and it's in 
do they is this the album closer like i think it's the album yeah, closer. it right? is yeah okay yeah it's um i mean it's it's a good way to sort of close and and you know that's sort of like when i'm teaching kids how to write essays i'm always like and then at the end don't summarize talk about the future talk about how this could relate to you know something else or whatever that's what your final paragraph should be it shouldn't just be like a finalization of everything and that's where i feel like he's trying to go with that and i don't know you know what i mean because i'll be perfectly honest i have never actually heard the next motley crew album ever so um i don't know where they go i've heard generation swine but i didn't even know this album existed which is i don't know man you might want to kick me out of the podcast (laughs) but we're all we're all friends it's all good right yeah but um I'm I'm interested to see where they go because it is definitely better than Fight for Your Rights, but it still feels like someone feeling around about how it's how you're supposed to write a protest song. And this also has like a Beatles riff in it somewhere, right? Like near the end, doesn't it? Well, they it? reference all the young dudes by Mike. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. I was humming it over and over again. I was trying to put it together. Okay. Yeah. So they reference that, but it just I just wish there was. And I kind of like that influence to it, you know, that 60s, early 70s vibe, you know what I mean, of peace, love, happiness, let's all get along. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it's still lacking. It's still not a great song. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm guilty of this, but I'm, I'll, I'll own up to it. I mean, sometimes you want to write a song that sounds like your heroes. I mean, that piano intro totally reminds me of the Stones um, black and blue track Memory Motel. Mm. You know, you got the you know, the ARP avatar kind of omni string ensemble in the background with the, you know, the piano. And, you know, sometimes you just you need to have a song like that on a record and release it. You know, whether or not people want to listen to it, it's up to them. And it's cool if people buy into it, but at the same time too, um, you know, I, I've spoken with friends about you know album closes in a way, and sometimes a song like um, you know, uh, you know, "Don't Go Away Mad," you know, "Just Go Away," that song kind of fades out and it works. It's almost like you imagine the band is still playing as the record is fading out, like you know, they, like they're kind of done with it in a way. Maybe the album should have ended with "Don't Go Away Mad," "Just Go Away." Or this song should have been earlier on on the album. But when I was t- talking earlier about ballads. Or power ballads. I think this is the the least commercial ballad that was on the record. And I think you know the other one, which was um, you know without you, it works for the time period. But I think that you know they obviously adventures are trying to do something a little different. But it almost sounds it too at certain points. Uh, it doesn't sound like Vince singing some of the lead vocals on this track. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's they're kind of reaching out and stretching out in a way, and and that's cool. But you know, I don't know. I think it's. It was, you know, it went over the heads of the, of, the, of their audience at the time, in a way. Yeah. So, so this song, I think what Nikki was trying to do was to come up with a song that would fit in with the pantheon of great rock songs about change, right? I mean, you have Bowie with changes. You have, uh, you know, what's the Black Sabbath song? I'm going through changes. Um, you know, you even Van Halen, Unchained. You know, yeah. I mean. And this is not a great song. Um, I think part of it is it just feels unfinished. It feels half-baked. It, it feels like he's got some idea of what he wants to say with it, but he hasn't completed his thoughts or, or, or it hasn't gelled. This is about as lyrically evolved as the doctor, first Dr. Feelgood demo before it, you know, he finished writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was talking to somebody, this this woman that hung out with the band back in the day and was working for them and on tour with them. And she said, you know, Nikki's always been uh, a political news junkie. Mm-hmm. And like, so if you go into, you know, Tommy's hotel room or Vince's hotel room, they might have pornography on. But if you went into <laughs> Nikki's hotel room, he would have CNN on 24 hours a day. And um so the lines talking about uh, 
old tired fools turn to tarot cards and lie of crime. That's a reference to the fact that when Reagan had dementia and they were covering Mm. it up in the White House, Nancy Reagan was inviting, literally inviting tarot card readers over to the White House to help influence the direction of the United States, which is a chillingly horrifying thought. And this was the end of the Reagan era and the pendulum was about to swing over to Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so this song kind of kind of marks that. But is it ultimately doing so in in an effective or classic way? Unfortunately, not. No, and I I remember, you know, as much as I love my family and I love my sister, I remember her listening to this record. And I really never even got to this point on the record to listen to it. And she would play this song. She played the album all the way through. And I would hear it, I would say, is that a Motley Crue song? Or she'd like switch over to like a Faster Pussycat album, in a way. It, it, it just, it seemed like a, a dramatic shift. And supposedly that's Bob Rock on bass. That's not even Nikki Six on bass on this one, for whatever reason. Yeah, the, and on that subject too, like who is the co-writer on this? On um, this so Donna McDaniel, who's given first uh, writing credit, I believe, on this song, she was one of the nasty habits. So, yeah, she may have written the lion's share of the music. I mean, that would be my guess, considering she's got first writer's credit. Hmm. You know, but, but still, overall, you know, I mean, hmm. they were huge. This record, it, it's great. I mean, it, it's great because there are a lot of, well, there are a handful of really great songs on it. But, uh, you know, supplant that with, you know, songs that aren't so great. But still, I mean, if you've got two or three really killer songs on a record, I mean, and you could shoot videos and, and tour behind it, then... And, you know, more power to you. Yeah. And this record made them bigger than ever. I mean, I think they played the forum for like three or four nights in a row uh, on this tour and they didn't sleep. So apparently by the time they got to the fourth night, they were in pretty rough shape. (laughs) But, uh... But, you know, a funny point too is, um, you know, if you have a chance between uh, you know today and, and and the next podcast, and check out the MTV documentary, because they seem so focused on the lineup as they were, you know, uh-huh. it, almost like you know, I can't see playing with any other guys, and you know these four guys, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame that they went from this to well, they did decade of decadence, yeah, at, that had a few new songs on it, and we'll have to talk about that maybe we'll do a short one just for that and then we'll sure. then we'll, we'll do uh karabi but yeah so and, and um, before we get to that too or, you know, aside from that where did you guys or if you did see this tour where did you see it in la or did you see it uh, in pittsburgh because you, you guys were in college i was in college at the same time too but i, I saw this tour twice in pittsburgh where did okay. you guys see it did you see the tour john I did not see it because it went nowhere near uh, the only the only shows that I could have seen were things I would have had to drive into New York City to see it. And I didn't have a car at the time. Yeah. It was nowhere. Yeah, I saw it at the forum. I, I, I want to say the first night at the forum with uh, Faster Pussycat opening. OK. And it was cool. I mean, you know, it was like it was a homecoming show for them because the band is, you know, as as John pointed out, pretty synonymous with Los Angeles and. Hollywood and uh, I mean it was a great show um, not not to say that anything necessarily sticks out in, in terms of my memory it was just that kind of the tr- triumphant return of the hometown heroes wow cool that you saw it though you know but it also in terms of production and backline I remember walking into you know the venues when I saw the show and you saw like this wall of like 30 martial amplifiers and 30 amp SVT, you know, eight by 10 cabinets. And I thought, oh my God, we are going to get killed. It's, you know, that, you know, that's a visual in its own. It's just like, you know, the amplifiers, the band, the drum kit, and we're going to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) With power and great music, you know. I do remember they had an intro tape that they played that I think they have the words to in the tour program, but it never ended up on any album or anything like that. And it was all about, uh, the past be gone and you know we're all about the future and we don't you know we'll destroy anything that's come before yeah check out again check out the interview rocker because they go into this thing about how like the intro is like this whole laser projection thing and they go through the history of the band like right right laser projection went with that that's right and they had the pentagram and, and the laser yeah and it's all coming back to me 
good times, good record, you know, good tour, good, great shows. You know, I mean, they were kicking ass, you know, they were, and it all went South. <laughs> well, it went different. Not, yeah. East, West, you know, whatever. <laughs> not too long after that. Any final thoughts? No, I mean, um, I expected more from this album. I seem to, I remember like getting super, like not going to buy it, not saying I'm, I'm done. You know what I mean? I'm not listening to this stuff anymore. Um, and it, it wasn't like, I wasn't turning my back on metal. I mean, I still was listening to it, but like there was so much more stuff coming at me that I wanted to, you know, that I was sort of searching out. Um, but I remember buying it, liking it, and then, but now listening to it again, there is a, kind of a lot of filler on it. I'm kind of a little, um, but those, I mean, Dr. Feelgood and Kickstart My Heart, you can't, those are two of the greatest yeah. songs ever written in rock and roll. So, I mean, that makes this album like literally a for sure. uh, classic. For me, yeah, for sure. There were killer songs on this record, but like this tour was just so badass. I mean, they were huge. They were mega, you know, and it, to be at that level, shows you know that they had so much drive and so much passion for what they did and if you saw those shows you know what i'm talking about it was amazing what they did in terms of like you know production and pyro and volume and they are man you know i'm so glad i i saw this tour twice you know because it was a freaking amazing in my opinion you know and yeah. and, and again we would you know whatever happens with the, this upcoming uh Def Leppard, uh, Motley Crue tour, you know, is going to be happening supposedly this summer. I'm looking forward now to seeing them again because I just got to see that rhythm section. I got to see Mick play guitar, uh, you know, you know, and I'm hoping they deliver, which I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Nicky talks in the dirt about how he felt like the record industry was <clears throat> ready to write off Motley Crue after Girls, Girls, Girls. Mm -hmm. um, even though the album was successful and it sold 4 million copies or whatever, he just felt like, you know, the, the record industry machine was done with them and they did the one thing that nobody was expecting them to be able to do, which was mm -hmm. get clean and sober and come up with an album that sold more and was bigger uh, and badder and led to a more successful tour than they had ever done. So yeah. if for no other reason, uh, this album deserves uh, a full-throated listen and, and two thumbs up for, for their ability to overcome that and do that. Yeah. I had written Motley Crue off after Girls, 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 and this album brought me right back in. Well, then, next week we will be back and we will take a look at the new songs on Decade of Decadence. Decade of Decadence.